Hello and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality beyond the fences and the walls of organized religion and the institutional church. I am so glad that you have joined us today for episode number 20 of the podcast because I have a really special guest that I would like to introduce you to, my friend and colleague, Jonathan Deerdorf. Jonathan is really one of the most insightful and most thoughtful people I know when it comes to not just theology, although he's a brilliant theologian, but also what it means to be someone who follows the way of Jesus with or without the institutional baggage that we tend to hang on that. So please join me in giving a very warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Jonathan Deerdorf. So yeah, so I began to engage uh, these biblical texts, and, and, and in short, my conclusion is that to a large extent we've just taken uh, these texts out of their socio-historical context. Um, or out of their literary context. So our guest uh, on this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast is my good friend, Jonathan Deerdorf. Uh, Jonathan is um, a United Methodist pastor, um, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about his background here in just a second. But we've been having some conversations around, I don't know, some really interesting topics about um biblical narratives and interpretive narratives and things like that that we want to talk about a little bit. But there's a lot of really cool stuff that Jonathan is working on. And we just kind of thought we'd take this opportunity to just kind of riff and <laughs> and have a little conversation and record it as we go and see what happens. So welcome, Jonathan, to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Thanks, Joe. It's really good to be here today. Glad, glad to have on. you. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you do and, and maybe a little bit of a, a background of, of how you got to where you are. Sure. Uh, so I'm currently um, the pastor at St. Andrew United Methodist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia. Uh, and uh, I've been there for a year now. Um, but I didn't grow up United Methodist. Um, I, I grew up uh, in West Virginia in an independent fundamental missionary Baptist church. And um, was the youngest of three kids. And so um, grew up in a, in a tradition that was much different than the United Methodist Church. Um, but some of the people there that I grew up with, uh, the adults as well as the youth or people my age, are some of the m- most amazing people still that I know. And my best friends to this day are people that I met out of that church. My parents are still members of that same congregation and, and leadership positions. Um, and so um, I, I grew up there and uh, was really involved in church from the time that I was born. Um, I think my mom told me the first time that I went out in public was to have my church, my picture made for the church directory. Nice. <laughs> uh, so grew up very involved in church and um, church camp. VBS uh, went on mission trips. I was a part of Awana program, which is a Bible memorization program from the time that I was three through sixth grade and uh, memorized all the scripture that they published. And so uh, that's that terrifying. Was, <laughs> yeah. So that, that's kind of my background. Um, and I, I, I sensed the call to ministry actually in that church. Um, when I was in my senior year of high school. And so um, in an independent missionary Baptist church, they don't really have a trajectory or a plan for what you do once you're called to ministry, like we do in the United Methodist Church. We have a very clear-cut, definitive process. A somewhat the- cumbersome and clear-cut, definitive process, but yes. <laughs> right. For the church that I grew up in, it was... Um, you feel called to preach and um, there's just not a next step other than maybe being licensed and ordained, but there really wasn't a uh, real, there wasn't a clear plan for that either. So um, I decided to, to go to college uh, and I I never planned on going to college, but I I went to um, a small Bible college and did my undergraduate degree in Bible and theology. And it was, uh, it was a, a, 
a school that was within the tradition of my church. So it was, um, it was a little bit more open-minded. Um, the church that I grew up in um, only used the King James Version exclusively. Uh, and so this, this school was a little more open-minded because they were willing to have some conversations that um, we couldn't have um, growing up in Sunday school as well as open to a little more critical scholarship. So I did that, was there for four years. Uh, and after I graduated from college, I kind of had a, a formative experience around my junior year of college. Um, I read a book uh, called A New Kind of Christian by Brian McLaren. Oh, man. Someone who, uh, someone who challenged me, my brother challenged me to read it. And I, when I read that book, I woke up feeling sick every day for like two weeks uh, because it just totally rocked my faith. Um, that's, and, that's so wild because that was for me also, that was one of the books that really kind of wrecked my worldview. I, I had started reading some things that at that time we were calling it emergent, you know, that, right. that term has kind of fallen out of favor. Uh, and somebody, you know, was reading. So I think I was blogging at the time, maybe I'm not sure what got it started, but somebody, I think it was a cousin of mine said, you need to read this guy, Brian McLaren. Right. And, uh, and her husband was a Presbyterian pastor and, okay. and they kind of got me turned on. And I had very similar experiences. Like when I was reading that book, my sleep patterns were all messed up. I, I was just walking around in my own head all the time trying to, you know, and it wasn't like, I don't know, it, it wasn't a negative reaction, but it felt like I, all of my foundation had just been completely shifted. Absolutely. That, yeah, that's crazy. We have, uh, I guess the world has a lot to, to blame Brian McLaren for now between the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> I got to meet him at wild goose last year. Oh, really? And, and it was, um, it was so cool to just stand there and talk to somebody like that, that had had such a formative experience, you know, um, as, as it ended up, we talked about fly fishing for about 20 minutes because we both have a passion for fly fishing. So we talked very little about, you know, this, um, uh, faith formation, but I, I remember telling him, you know, how, um, how important his books and at the time his blog and stuff were both to my deconstruction process, as well as my reconstruction process. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've read several of his books, and I I agree with you on that. Uh, is he doesn't leave leave us with a minimalist, empty kind of faith, just a just yeah. a new kind of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I always enjoyed the way he framed that. So you got through kind of that period of your life, and then um, you ended up in seminary, right? And, and you and I attended the same seminary, although I don't think we were there at this. There might have been a little overlap. I'm not sure. I don't think we ever had any classes together yeah. unless maybe it was an online class or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. We, we could have been, um, but yeah, I, I was actually on staff at a church. So, so I went from independent fundamental missionary Baptist uh, to a community church while I was in college and I was a youth pastor for about two years and doctrinally it was almost exactly the same thing. The, the, the big innovation there was that women were allowed to wear pants to church. Uh, Shocking. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was actually, uh, as, as funny as that might sound to a lot of people, that was actually really liberating for me just for there to be any kind of change or openness. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean that, I, I, I realize that sounds petty, but it, it really was kind of a big move. Um, uh, so yeah, so I went from there and, um, read Brian McLaren's book and, I didn't know where I fit anymore. I just knew that I didn't belong in, um, I knew I didn't belong in that tradition any longer. And so I thought, you know, what am I supposed to do now? Um, and so I got married and I needed a job. And so I began looking at how I could put my undergraduate degree to use. And there was a, a church in uh, West Virginia that was looking for a youth pastor. It was a United Methodist church. And I had a very loose affiliation with it simply because of some friends. Right. Uh, and so I ended up being a youth pastor for three and a half years going to seminary. And I was, I stayed on staff at that church through that period. And so I was there for almost eight years. 
Very and cool. That's how I got connected with the United Methodist Church and found out that that's that was my home. I, I've uh, our, our our denomination, our church is is far from perfect, but it's home for me. It's it's really um, a great fit for me. Yeah, and one of the things that you know. I don't know. A lot, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast, um, we might, you know, kind of classify ourselves as spiritual exiles or folks who are struggling with, you know, the institutional church and stuff. And, and I think you and I, I mean, some of our conversations we've had, even though we're firmly embedded in the institution, mm-hmm. we have our issues with it. Right. And, and I think there are some of us that it probably, you know, it it might be that that we're the ones that it falls upon to reform from within, right? Because reform can't necessarily happen from the outside. That's so. That's always kind of why I felt like that's still. I like the way you said it. It's, it's still home, even though I've got some pretty serious issues with home sometimes, right? right. Um, but it's still. But the United Methodist Church is for for all of its issues still a pretty big tent, right? Theologically, yeah. right? There, there's a lot of room for a lot of different sort of, you know, theological, um, ideas and expressions and so forth. And so, you know, you, the, the, the seminary that you and I went to is, you know, kind of a conservative, you know, institution, Mm -hmm. but the one thing I always admired about it, and I don't know if you had the same experience or not, but I had some pretty progressive slash liberal, uh, professors there. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was, you know, to their credit, that they did, you know, have a pretty diverse faculty. They didn't try to silence dissenting mm-hmm. voices within the faculty. Right. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. I think that. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I. I don't know that I would have ever used the word liberal or progressive. I guess in my mind, I thought critical scholarship. They were willing to. I had professors who were willing to go where the evidence led them, regardless of whether it was consistent with, you know, what maybe imposed expectations. Right. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. I guess I would use the, the term I use mostly because I had a beer with a couple of them, maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that might change uh, <laughs> the outlook a little bit there. Sure. So, so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast and one of the conversations we've been having is, you you wrote a book <laughs> during this pandemic time, um, and I remember like the first time you, I can't remember if you emailed me or texted me or something and said, "Hey, I'm working on this book. Would you mind reading a couple of chapters?" And I'm first I'm like, "Why me?" But thank you. Yes, I would absolutely do it. But like you just got on a roll with this thing. Most people take like years to write their first book, and you just bang this thing out. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, it has been, it has been, um, in the making for a while. Um, in the back of my mind, I have tried to write it before and I just didn't know how to write a book. Um, I had all kinds of ideas and, um, one day it was, it was almost like I could not, not write. It was just blowing out of me. I think I wrote like 5,000 words in the first day. Wow. And so that, that got me off to a pretty good start. Um, it was pretty, that, that 5,000 words of course was pretty rough. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it, uh, is exegetical work or really working with the biblical text in depth, looking at the original languages and the socio historical context. And so I had done a lot of that work. It was more about how to organize it, uh, within a chapter and then within the scope of the whole book. But yeah, it probably took me about, um, I, I'm going to say about 10 weeks to write it. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So I know you're still shopping it out to publishers and I don't want to, you know, get too many spoilers because once somebody publishes it, I know you want to sell the book. So yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, what can you, what can you tell us about this book? Because I think what you do, you know, from the stuff that you, um, you know, the, the window that you kind of gave me into it, the, the chapters that I read, um, it, it, it does sort of reflect sort of your journey theologically. Right. So, so what can you tell us about that? And, um, like what, what sparked, um, the idea for it and, and, and where did that take you? Yeah. So, um, the, the book is, uh, it is about LGBTQ community. Uh, and of course our denomination is in, um, or has been uh, in a conversation about this for a long time about 
um, what does it mean to include people in the LGBTQ community? And, and most United Methodist churches that I know say everybody's welcome, but I think that the, the more um, focused area of the concentration or most more focused area of the conversation is about um, allowing full inclusion, which would be ordaining persons who um, are uh, homosexual and also allowing United Methodist clergy to perform same-sex weddings. And so um, that would that would be pretty revolutionary for our church uh, for something like that to happen. Um, so the, um, the conversation that I've heard uh, a lot is, you know, this is what the Bible says and the Bible was very clear. And um, without backtracking and going through my journey again, you know, that's the way I was raised um, in the church that I was raised in. There would have been no conversation about this whatsoever. It was just, it was a settled issue. Uh, and going through seminary, um, it was not something that I really ever had a whole lot of conversations with in any of my classes about. Um, but I kind of just assumed that, um, that the Bible says, you know, that it's incompatible with Christian teaching as the United Methodist book states, uh, book of discipline states it. I just kind of assumed that that was, you know, the, the final word on it. And there was nothing more to explore uh, until we had our, our last special conference in 2019. Uh, and I was trying to help my congregation prepare for what I think many of us felt was inevitable was uh, some kind of a split. And so I began looking at the biblical text, not because I, uh, I still, I, I kind of held to the traditional view um, even though I didn't preach about it or condemn anyone or anything like that. Um, but I wanted my congregation to be more informed rather than to say something like the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, you know, right. um, I wanted them to be able to talk about it and have a deeper theology than just kind of a emotional bias towards it. So I really began to study, uh, the biblical texts. Um, and a lot of times in conversations that I've had with people who hold a more traditional perspective. Um, their argument or their response is, well, people who support full inclusion, for them, it's just an emotional thing. They just kind of don't like what the Bible says and want to override uh, what right, yeah. and, and let love, you know, be the answer to everything. And so I, I really got pretty deep into the biblical texts that talk about same-sex relations and discovered that, uh, in, at least in my opinion, that we can no longer call um, the traditional perspective the biblical perspective. It's not, it's not fair to equate those two, that there's more than one biblical perspective. So, yeah. So, so not to call it, maybe just to tweak what, the way you just said that, not to call it the biblical perspective, but to call it a biblical mm, perspective. Sure. Maybe, right? It's a valid biblical perspective, but it's not the, it's not the biblical perspective. Yeah. So, so what did you discover during your work that led you to that conclusion? Oh man! <laughs> Without giving the book away, I guess. Right? Yeah. So uh, a huge part of it has to do with the fact that we've gotten really lazy with how we read scripture, um, and so um, we a lot of times we just don't engage it very critically, and um, we take it out of context a lot. Uh, I hate to say it, but that's kind of that's kind of my conclusion. And so not only, not only engaging scripture, but we've gotten kind of lazy with how we even talk about um, scripture as um, a source of authority. And um, we don't, you know, we, we've um, got some views, I think, that kind of um, inhibit us from being able to have critical conversations that are really um, in the scope of the last 2000 years or relatively recent. Yeah our assumptions and presuppositions about the Bible. Um, that, I think that's a huge part of it, especially since traditionalists claim that, um, that the issue is not so much about same sex relations as it is. The bigger picture is the authority of the Bible. If, if we disregard this subject, what else are we going to do in the future? Right. Yeah. The old slippery slope argument, right? Right. Right. So, yeah. So I began to engage uh, these biblical texts and, 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 in short, 
my conclusion is that to a large extent, we've just taken uh, these texts out of their socio-historical context um, or out of their literary context to, uh, I think we're motivated to use them in ways that serve us. Yeah. 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 And I think that, that really does speak to our attitude about biblical authority, right? Uh, or, or maybe just authority in general, <laughs> you know, um, we tend, I, I think we have this tendency as human beings, um, to want someone else to tell us what to think, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for whatever reasons, like, you know, and, and there may be some really valid reasons for that. I, I always go back in my mind. I had a, a, I think it was a 10th or 11th grade English teacher that just the one thing, and he was, he was an okay teacher. Like I wouldn't say he was the greatest teacher I ever had by any stretch of the imagination, but he would echo like almost daily in class. His mantra was think for yourself think for yourself. Right. And he, the way he taught his class was equipping us to do that, at least within the context of, you know, 10th grade high school English, right. To think for ourselves. And, and that's one of those little life lessons that sticks with you. And as you, you know, as you kind of get older and you gain some perspective on things, you can you can begin to see really easily, like I think this pandemic situation we're in is showing us how few people really are willing to, to engage with things in a critical way. They are willing to just cede authority mm-hmm. to to whatever entity it is that they choose to cede authority to. Um, right. Without that, without the critical questioning and 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 examination that I think is, we've we've just lost that ability for critical thinking maybe. And, um, you know, so, yeah. So I, I love that, that, that those were the things that kind of drove you, um, you know, to not, not only to write the book, which I think is really inspiring, but also to like authentically engage your community in really difficult conversations. So, yeah. So, um, how, how have folks responded? Have you been, I don't know. Let, let me back up a little bit before I ask you that question, <laughs> because this kind of goes to um, one of the other things that that I wanted to talk about was this this thing about competing narratives, right? And so, talk a little bit about that, and then I then I do want to get back to like some some posts that that you've made that I know have generated a little conversation and controversy. But I think we, I think we need to talk a little bit about this idea of competing narratives before we get into some sure. of that stuff. Sure. So um, one of the things about narratives, about stories, is that we often don't realize that um, they are constructed. Um, We just assume that they are reality, that they represent objective reality. uh, And we don't, uh, that goes back to the critical thinking. Um, You know, so much of our thoughts and our perceptions of, of how we see the Bible and the Christian faith, we, we read it through a very Protestant lens. And in my research for my book, I realized I had some hard feelings of, uh, against Martin Luther that were probably not valid because he actually a lot of um, ideas that got pinned on him didn't come around until uh, post-Reformation theology. But anyways, yeah. Um, Mostly yeah. we can blame Calvin, I think, but that's that's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We can always blame Calvin. Um, and so narratives are something that we construct. That's why there are so many different kinds of churches. It's That's really the best way to think of it is that each church has somewhat, each denomination or faith tradition has kind of a different way of um, telling the faith story. And I, the way that I think of it, and I haven't quite... Um, tease this analogy out yet, but I, I think of Lego blocks um, because Lego blocks come in all different sizes. And so, um, but you can, you can use those to, uh, to construct a little Lego block house. And if, if you build one and I build one um, there, somebody's probably going to be able to look at it, at both of them and say, Hey, those are Lego houses, uh, but we're going to build our house in different proportionate ways. And right. so the faith tradition that I grew up in gave a huge amount of faith, uh, amount of space 
to the story of Adam and Eve and the garden and the fall. And, and the narrative that I was raised with um, was very much seen through that lens of the world is broken, everybody. And just within the last few years, I learned, um, you know, I've been studying the Bible academically for 15 or 16 years now. And it was just the last couple of years that I realized that Adam and Eve aren't mentioned in the Hebrew Bible after Genesis chapter three, right? <laughs> except for maybe um, some genealogies. And so um, some, some faith traditions give that story a ton of weight and, and they, they give it so much more space. Some traditions don't, or they understand the story in a different way. And so what happens is we take these um, little bits and pieces and we, we put together a story. Another, another al- analogy might be a mosaic, taking lots of bits and pieces and putting together a picture. Right. If you and I have identical pieces, we might have something that kind of looks the same, but in the end, um, it could look very different depending on you know, what kind of... Uh, weight or authority we give to certain things. So, so that's how we end up having competing narratives. And of course we have different motivations for, um, for why we develop um, a biblical narrative or a worldview kind of narrative. And, and I'll say this really quick and then, you know, um, no, that's good. (laughs) um, I I think uh, ultimately what I'm, I'm kind of coming to a conclusion is that we either develop narratives that help serve us or narratives that help us serve. Mm. Uh, And sometimes we aren't aware of that. We aren't aware that we are developing a narrative that helps serve us, that gives us power and privilege and um, consequently places other people in a place of um, maybe injustice, oppression. Um, And so yeah, that's kind of the way that I understand competing narratives. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, and and perspective has everything to do with that, right? And you know what? That's one of the things that when I'm talking to people, and even when I'm teaching um, Bible classes and things like that, I, I always kind of open with like, we are always interpreting, right? We are always sure. about you know, you and I, even in this conversation we're having, are interpreting one another, right? People who listen to this podcast are going to be interpreting what they say. Like we're always about the business of doing that. And we're always doing it through the lens of our perspective, right? And all of the things that build that perspective are our families of origin, our life experiences, our prejudices, you know, all of those things come together. And, you know, our, our big, you know, 25 cent seminary word for that is hermeneutics, right? It's the lens through which we view, um, you know, in this case, the biblical text or or whatever it is, you know. So we build these narratives based on, you know, our our perspectives, and then, but then, because we are human beings who are often dualistic thinkers, you know, every everything is an either or proposition. So if right. if I believe my narrative to be correct that means that every other narrative by definition is incorrect. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so speak to that a little bit. I mean, how, how do you experience that, you know, within your context? Well, I think one thing that I'm learning right now is that we, so tradition is such an important part of what informs our narrative. We have 2000 years of, of, different narratives to evaluate and to look at them and be like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that the church fathers read the story of the good Samaritan that way. That's crazy. Um, when in all likelihood, there are going to be people who are reading, you know, something that we've written or said, um, a few hundred years from now that are going to think the same thing from us. Uh, and so, um, I think what I'm learning is that probably we're never going to arrive at, at, as the church, you know, Paul says, we, we see through a glass darkly. And the Greek yes. word that he uses there is enigma. It's where we get our English word enigma. We're looking into an enigma. Um, we, we only see, we only see part of it. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that um, when it comes to, to forming these narratives, we have to have humility. Um, we have to be informed about the past uh, and we we need to uh, 
use critical thinking. Um, and does that kind of help? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, one of the, as we've been talking about this idea of competing narratives, one of the the sets of competing narratives that I've been working with, you know, just in, in what I've been doing lately is these, these, I guess I would call them fear based narratives mm-hmm. um, that are, I, I think, I think fear largely comes maybe not exclusively, but, but largely from when we perceive that we are losing control. Right. So, you know, a fear and control based narrative versus a narrative that's maybe more based in ideas of grace and wisdom. Wisdom is one that uh, really has been resonating with me a lot lately, mostly because of some stuff I've been reading from Richard Rohr, um, mm-hmm. where he's been talking about the wisdom traditions. And then, um, I don't know if you listen to Pete N's um, Bible for Normal People podcast, right? So yeah. it, Pete N's and Jared Bias there have been talking a lot about the Bible as wisdom literature, mm-hmm. which... I haven't, I haven't dug real deeply into that yet, but that concept really resonates with me because when we can begin to see that as wisdom literature, and I think maybe McLaren in, in one of his books kind of talks about the difference between viewing the Bible as like a constitution versus, you know, this library of of love right. letters, you know, or what I don't remember what language he uses. Um but if we can see the Bible as wisdom literature, we're going to look at it differently than if we look at it as a constitution, right? And I think one of those, you know, enduring narratives, especially in the evangelical church of the 20th and now 21st century, has been a very constitutional view of Scripture, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so as we as we're kind of unpacking this competing narratives, that kind of leads me back to a point I started to make a few minutes ago about um, some things you posted here about a month or so ago around, um, especially around the idea of Christendom, mm-hmm. which is a term that I think a lot of people maybe are not terribly familiar with, but it, it generated a lot of buzz. I know you had a lot of a lot of conversation on the threads, and and you had a lot of people sharing that post and. I know I shared it and then like 20 people that I knew sh- shared it. So yeah. you're pretty close to being a, a big viral deal there, man. <laughs> yeah. That was, so where, where did that come from? Talk a little bit about what you were writing about there and, and let's just kind of see where that leads us. Yeah. So, so one of the, it's connected to biblical narratives, um, competing narratives, because um, I think one of the challenges with you were talking about a, a constitutional view of the Bible, um, words that I would use would be like a static view of the Bible, like yeah. the Bible talking about history and it's talking about the future. Uh, I think a lot of times that's the way people perceive, perceive the Bible is like the old Testament is, is talking about history, ancient history. Most of the new Testament is talking about history as well, but the book of revelation is, is talking about the future. And I think really my understanding of the Bible is that it's a dynamic book that is inviting us to participate in this story. Um, that transcends space and time, even though it involves space and time. Uh, and part of the challenge of um, the way that we read the Bible is how we uh, appropriate the Bible in our lives. And it seems like that um, one of the one of the things that I'm observing right now is that um, because of the static view of the Bible, it, it seems like some people are having problems. Um, trying to recontextualize um, the biblical narrative. I, I don't know if that makes sense, uh, but um, instead of having it in our mind as this fixed story of something that happened or that will happen, um, my understanding of scripture is that we're participating in the kingdom of God now um, in a way that um, isn't very visible. It's uh, kind of like Jesus talked about with the mustard seed. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and so um, for me, it is, uh, my, my post was a, basically a, about how that um, we've kind of lost touch with knowing our story uh, and what it looks like to hold on to these values of Jesus and the early church uh, in the modern world, we've uh, embraced 
instead of uh, the story of Jesus, we've embraced the story of Christendom. That's kind of um, what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I guess most uh, church historians would say that Christendom began under uh, Constantine, who was the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. Um, and uh, in, in that post, I just kind of reflect briefly. I don't go into everything that he does, um, but I ref- reflect briefly on on how that the church had moved from um, a, a relatively small movement mm-hmm. for the first 350 years or so um, after Jesus's death and resurrection. Um, it was a small movement. It was a movement of pacifists. It was a movement of people who um, they, um, they were really focused on serving. They were kind of the underdogs of the world. Yeah. And of course, during that time, they were also persecuted and they expected persecution. And they said things like, um, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. They believed that uh, part of following Jesus meant um, making sacrifices for their faith. And that sounds really unfamiliar to us now. Yeah. But we've, I think we've adopted such a consumeristic model of Christianity. And that, that began with Constantine, um, who not only made it uh, legal to practice Christianity, um, Christianity was illegal up to that point because they Christians would not uh, participate in uh, civil religion of worshiping the emperor. Right. And so they were persecuted for that. Constantine not only lifted that, but at some point he also endorsed Christianity and made it the um, religion of the state. And um, it changed the face of Christianity completely. Uh, And one of the examples that I give is that Constantine, um, he still was a pagan um, because pagans could practice as many religions as they wanted to. So he right, just added yeah. to his list. Um, but one of the things that he did, and I can't remember the exact battle, but uh, he had his troops run through a stream and he claimed that they were baptized <laughs> and <then laughs> saw a vision that said, uh, by the sign conquer. And in that vision, his, the sign that he saw was the cross. And so that's really, you know, we're looking at, uh, I'm just, kind of estimating here, like near the end of the fourth century. And this is the first time that we really see um, Christianity begin to use sacred symbols um, as an opportunity to implement force and domination in the world. And a lot of most Christians that I know, at least don't know that don't realize that. And that's where I think that we have kind of, uh, shifted tracks and moved away from the way of Jesus, which was uh, about being um, the least <laughs> and denying ourselves and um, being willing to be the, the last instead of first, um, being willing to be um, a servant of all rather than a ruler of all. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last- I think, I think most modern Christians anyhow, probably if they know about Constantine think of Constantine as a hero, right? Because Constantine was the one that made Christianity, you know, the official religion of the empire, legitimized it. And so there, and in the one sense, like that allowed Christianity to explode, but at the same time, it also politicized and weaponized. Right. Christianity. And I think a lot of people don't know that side of that story, you know, Um, but yeah, it did it did allow for rapid growth uh, of the faith, but, mm-hmm. um, but what kind of faith did it then become? Right. And then, so the whole concept of Christendom, it, it big picture in general is the, the, the marriage from Constantine forward of the church and the state, right. The kind right. of the unholy alliance for the most part of, of how politics has co-opted religion and vice versa, to achieve agendas, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, my interpretation of the book of revelation and, and this most biblical scholars, current biblical scholars is that the beast in revelation is probably either talking about Nero or uh, can't remember Domitian. Domitian one of yeah. And that the mark of the beast is probably the, you know, Nero's name in Greek um, six, six, six. And so, 
you know, we, we move from that and the idea of being victorious in the name of the lamb is actually being slaughtered, like following the lamb to slaughter, uh, to being the ones who hold the sword in our hands. Um, we, we make that move within a period of 400 years. So when you, um, again, when you made that post, it kind of went fairly viral. I don't know what numbers constitute viral, but it got a lot of attention, got a lot of response. Talk a little bit about, um, some of the, the pushback you got, uh, about that. You know, with, with that post, uh, I didn't get a ton of pushback. Uh, I, I really didn't get hardly any pushback on that post. I posted something <laughs> about, I guess it was the day before or two days before, uh, about uh, my concern about Donald Trump using the, the Bible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Church as uh, sacred symbols in the context of um, violence uh, and what what I would call counter violence. Yeah. Talking about being the president of law and order. And so um, I, up to this point, I have not, um, you know, been political on Facebook at all. And um, so I posted, I posted a strongly worded uh, refutation of, of that action. Um, and that got a lot of pushback. Yeah. That, and that one got a lot of, it, it, it spread pretty quickly too. If it's yeah. That one had more shares and everything than the first one it had like yeah. 1200 shares. Um, and so in order, I, I felt compelled, I guess the next day because of some misunderstanding, um, people, you know, maybe some people, uh, felt like I was stepping out of bounds as a pastor, uh, to be talking about something like this on a, on a public forum. And so I was trying to help people understand, um, the context, the historical context that there is a precedent for this in the past that um, crosses a dangerous line, in my opinion. And I felt like we, whatever day that was uh, in, in early June, that we had uh, come to a crossing point, a crossroads, uh, and that Christians need to understand that there are two narratives here yeah. that we do. Uh, and the thing about narratives, I think that is uh, tricky. And, and that's where I go in and compare Christianity and Christendom is that the symbols are the same. It's just right. how they're used. Um, and that's what makes it dangerous. That's what, you know, going back to the book of Revelation, that's what, that's how um, the beast is dangerous is because he is so much like Jesus. You know, it's, it's so close and his job is to deceive people. And I'm not just as a disclaimer, I'm not claiming that that's uh, Donald Trump or anything like right, that. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so Christendom and Christianity, they look similar. There's a lot of similarities. If we don't, um, if we don't look at it really close and critically, we won't see the difference, but seeing the difference is imperative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the thing that you said about that reminded me talking about symbols. Um, it, I'm pretty sure it was in a seminary class that I had. I don't remember which one, um, but I remember, we were talking about symbols and the professor was telling a story about a, a church somewhere in North America, I think maybe in California or someplace, um, you know, sent a team to Central America. I think it was maybe El Salvador or someplace um, to establish a church, you know, doing mission. And we, we could have a whole separate conversation about colonialism and mission and all of that. That's, that's a separate topic altogether. Right. So, but these folks went down, established relationships with, with local indigenous people, started, you know, a Christian faith community, started, built a church building. And, you know, so this relationship developed over the course of several years and um, local leaders, you know, were, were discovered and trained and empowered. Um, And so, you know, the local folks were running their own church and the, the American kind of, you know, planting church or whatever you want to call it, would once a year, you know, send a group down and and do some work and all that. So at one point, you know, again, several years in, local churches up and running, local leadership, all of that. Somebody in the the American, you know, home church um, decided to to build some beautiful big cross to send to the Central American church as, you know, a symbol of friendship and Built this, I don't know, it must have been really big, the way I remember the story. And, you know, a team took it, you know, on one of their trips, took the thing down, 
and the local pastor of you know of the local church said you can't put that in this building and the americans were like completely perplexed why you know the cross is the symbol of the christian faith why would you not want yeah. that in the building and and the local man said you know we in central america we were conquered by in that area i think you know spaniards or, or europeans of some kind who who conquered us under the symbols of the cross and the sword mm. and so for us that cross that you see as a symbol of of one thing to us is a symbol of violence and oppression Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that man, that story got stuck in my brain um, and has always resonated with me when we talk about things like you would assume that the cross is so universally accepted by Christianity. But in that case, it was really, you know, in terms of this conversation, it's a symbol of Christendom. Right. You know, so it's it's a different perspective again. And I think that's that's part of the issue is that is that we have forgotten that the cross was originally a symbol of oppression and violence yeah, and it was yeah. by the state to execute Jesus for political reasons. And we have uh, polished it and turned it into something different than that. We isolate yeah. it, take it out of context, uh, theologize it, all that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and I think often, and we can maybe even say this about the Bible itself, we end up worshiping the symbols. Mm-hmm. Do you think? I mean, it, there, it it almost becomes a kind of idolatry in itself. That unintentionally, we, we don't. Yeah, yeah, it's not intentional. It, it's again, it's sort of that that we allow our lack of intention um, to 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 move our focus from you know the the God, the Creator, you know whatever name you want to use for the divine. We move our attention from that to the symbols that are supposed to be signposts, you right. know, to that, but, but we want to worship the symbols because it's easier, right? It's because, because God is the divine is such a big topic, right? It's a, such, it's so beyond our understanding that we reduce our faith to the things we can understand, right? Yeah. The Bible, the cross, the church building, right? The color of the carpet, the or you know, whatever those things are. <laughs> Yeah. And I hate, you know, the old cliche, but it's true. You know, maybe the reason we do that is because we can't put God in a box. Yeah. Those other things we can touch, we can wrap our mind around them. We can control what they mean. Uh, God transcends all of that. And we can't, you know, I love Paul's words whenever he quotes the Athenian poet in Acts 17. In God, we move, we live and move and find our being. That's pretty abstract. Yeah. Um, very different than the ways that we talk about God sometimes in systematic theology. And so the symbols become very important for us because they become concrete. We try to try to make God concrete um, whenever that's not how God works. Yeah. And, and, and to me, the result of that is we end up creating a God in our image. Sure. Rather than being, you know, created in the image of this abstract Sure. God, right? That is so much bigger. I remember, um, I can't remember when it was, but I remember the moment that I had the the epiphany, the revelation that that God, whatever God is, exists outside of the confines of time and space, you know, which we have no frame of reference for. Like we can't, all our, our entire experience is bound to time and space. And so, you know, we get into this conversation. I, I always like to to tease my Calvinist friends, you know, that, that want to talk about predestination and God knowing what's going to happen before it happens. And I always come back with like, you know, to me, that presumes a God that's bound by time and space, right? When when I say when I say I know that God knows what's going to happen at the end of the pandemic or whatever, you know, and um it it presumes that God has the same limitations that we do. Um, I love. I think it was a John Wesley um, phrase that was something along the lines of uh, that God sees eternity as if in a moment, you know. And it, again, it's kind of an abstract statement, but that always um, meant something to me because it it speaks of something that is so much bigger than even the time and space that restricts our experience. Right. Yeah. So, 
I, I kind of want to move us um, a little bit towards, cause we're getting towards the end of the time uh, that, that we have together, but you know, we're in this kind of strange period and, and as leaders of faith communities, we're still trying to figure out what to do. I, I know kind of early on in, in the period of quarantine, you know, everybody kind of shifted church from in-person to online and, and, and which basically meant that we, we took our content. Uh, I wrote this uh, in my blog here um, recently. You know, we took the the content that we were producing, um, which was you know a, a Sunday morning worship service for the most part, or maybe some you know other Bible studies and things. And we were we adapted that from one medium, right, which was a church building, a sanctuary, and we we repurposed it for another medium. You know, so online, whether it was YouTube, Facebook Live, Zoom, whatever we were using. And, and and I think we all kind of said we we will do this for as long as we need to mm-hmm. until we can go back to you know whatever our our normal in air quotes would be right I I think we're starting to get to a point now you know several months into this situation where we we don't know <laughs> like if if or when that's ever going to happen that we can just kind of peel off the bandaid, right, of this online thing that we've been doing and, and go back to what we were doing before. So I, I guess my question would be like, if you had a crystal ball, <laughs> you know, if you could kind of look six months, a year, five years into the future um, of of the church, and I'm thinking big picture church, maybe not just your local community. Sure. Like, what do you see? What What do you think, where do you think we might be? What do you think might might happen there? That's a great question. And it's one that I think about a lot. Um, so just to kind of step back just for one second, um, I think it's safe to say studying church history that the church goes through phases. Yeah. Uh, you know, switching to Christendom was a, a switching to a phase. Uh, the Protestant Reformation in the beginning, beginning of the 16th century, that was switching to a phase. And when we study church history, we realize that it, it's so much more complex. There's so many more factors than Martin Luther just getting fed up with, you know, the idea of purgatory or something like that and writing his 95 theses and nailing it to the church door. Uh, there's so many factors. And when we really study it in depth, we find out that there were other people predating Martin Luther who were wanting to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so I say all of that to say that... Um, I don't think that the pandemic is presenting us with a new problem. Uh, I think that it's, I think it's unveiling a problem that we've been denying for a long time. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And that is that Christendom, the institutional church uh, is dying. (laughs) And um, as we know it anyhow. Yeah, absolutely. As we know it. And, and um, that's we it sounds bad to us because that's all we've ever known it sounds bad to us but um that means kind of like a butterfly shedding its cocoon we're we're moving towards something new and something beautiful even though it's also uh, simultaneously terrifying yeah because the institution uh, as we talked about at the very beginning it has its flaws uh, but it also has a lot of safety nets and we like those mm-hmm. um and so, um, you know, I think that um, I, I think that prior to the pandemic, we were holding off on having a lot of really difficult conversations that we can't put off anymore. Yeah. And that now the church, I think, is going to have to change out of necessity because it's like we we weren't going to do it on our own. Yeah, uh, we're, yeah. we're forced, and forced might be a harsh word, but. Uh, I think we're, for, we're being forced into doing something that is good for us, uh, regardless of whether we realize it or not. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know what that will look like. I mean, part of, um, part of what we know and experience now as church includes a building, which is uh, a product of Christendom. Uh, Constantine was the, was the leader of building these beautiful um, cathedrals that we've come to know, you know, church didn't have that for the first right. 350 years. So does, does the future of the church, uh, have that? Um, for me, it's hard to conceive that I just, I'm a millennial. 
uh, I have a hard time believing that people my age and younger are going to be really inspired to keep a church facility open uh, whenever there are starving people in the world. Yeah, yeah. More pressing issues. So I don't know what that's going to look like. Uh, and, and I'll say one more thing, and that is not only um, do these major shifts in church history not happen quickly, like this has been, this has been going on for a long time. I think that, that probably, you know, I have about 30 years before I'll be eligible for retirement. Um, and I think that, that it's probably safe to say that probably most of my career will be transitioning into this. Yeah. Um, a transition. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's a really insightful statement you just made there. Um, that it's, it's not, we, we are so conditioned, especially as Americans, for instant gratification. I, I call it the 30-minute sitcom, <laughs> you know, kind of syndrome, right? Because we, we have spent our whole lives, you know, being entertained by these programs that, you know, a problem presents itself, is worked out and resolved in 20 minutes plus commercials, right? right. right. <laughs> and we expect our lives to work that way. I think that may be part of why we're struggling so much now as a nation to deal with pandemic because, you know, we actually in the early weeks were kind of okay with the idea of we got to shut things down for a while. You know, we got to, you know, go into our homes. We can do that for a little bit. And when it began to stretch beyond our imaginations of what we thought it would be at first, we got really frustrated with that, you know, as a, as a culture. We thought we were going to come back to what we had known. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, and because, because things don't take this long in our lives, right? It doesn't take this long to solve problems in our lives. It's supposed to be done by now. And and we really have trouble conceptualizing things that are a long game. And so I like what you just said about even for the church, like this is, a, we're in the midst of a really long game. We may have hit one of these kind of, I always think of them as like a, a funnel point, right? When you when you come to periods of change, it seems like it, Phyllis Tickle writes in the Great Emergence about you know the, these great big shifts in Christianity that seem to happen about every five hundred years, mm-hmm. and here we are, you know, five hundred and three years from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, but that took you know fifty years, thirty to fifty years, really to to fully turn into something that we can now look back historically and recognize. I, you know, but there was that funnel point at 1517, you know, um, where all of that stuff that had been happened before came to this one place and then it kind of goes out again. And I think maybe we're in another one of those funnel points right now where all of this stuff is getting concentrated into one place and it's going to get released. Mm -hmm. And then what we do with it is going to take a while, right? It's going to take, and, and historians will be able to look back and sure. say what happened. We're living in the middle of it. We're not. We're we're defining it as we go, right? Absolutely. That's yeah. Which way. to me, <laughs> like I know some people find that absolutely, like paralyzingly terrifying. <laughs> right. I like they they can't even deal with. It. To me, that is the most exciting time we could be in now. I, I would I would love if pandemic weren't a part of that and people weren't getting sick and dying. Like and so, you know, I, I recognize that I speak from a position of privilege, you know, as somebody who's like my life actually adapted quite well to the the circumstances we're in now. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of us were already feeling the sands shifting for the last Absolutely. you know, at least ten or fifteen years or more. And and people like Brian McLaren and Phyllis Tickle we're seeing it even long before that, you know, a quarter century ago, they were starting to sense that some of that was happening. And so we're, we've gained this momentum and right. we kind of come to this choke point in the funnel. Yeah. Yeah. I, a few weeks ago, I actually preached on John chapter two and Jesus turning water into wine. And, you know, his response to his mom is it's not my time yet, but he goes ahead and he goes along with it. Yeah. Uh, and my reflection was, that um, so many times we might sense or think that God is calling us to do something, but yet we're waiting for this perfect moment and those don't exist. Right. Even Jesus had to learn that. Like there's the stream, just jump into it. And we're at the stream right now 
um, and we've got to jump into it. There's, yeah. there's probably not going to be this really definitive moment where we're all going to say, oh, this is the right minute for the for us to shift as the church. Yeah, it's going to be scary and it's going to be it's going to require a leap of faith. It is, and you know, and the other thing I think, like we're mixing so many metaphors here. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna require a lot of collaboration. Like, you know, um, I think, I think you're in a, a Facebook group that I posted a thing on um, a couple weeks ago about um, this documentary I watched called Echo, Echo in the Canyon, Echoes in the Canyon, um, about the Laurel Canyon musical movement in the 1960s and how artists um, like. Neil Young and, um, gosh, I'm, I'm drawing blanks now, Brian Wilson, um, you know, from, from bands, you know, the, the band Buffalo Springsteen, Buffalo, Buffalo Springfield, I'm sorry, the birds, you know, all of these artists living in this one area in this one period of time and how all of this great music came out of that time. And, and Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's son is the, like the narrator of the documentary. And he says at one point, like, none of this great art could have come out of one person's DNA. Mm. Right? It had to come out of this collaboration of, of different ideas and different voices. I think a lot of times, you know, we look back on a Martin Luther or a John Wesley, you know, or, or, you know, even a John Calvin or, you know, a figure like that and say, where, where's that leader for our moment? And we forget, like you said, like those movements have been building and building and building out of the collaborative effort of a lot of people, you know? And, and so that's, that's where I see hope and encouragement is like, we live in a time where we have technology that lets you and I sit here, I don't know, a hundred miles apart or so, <laughs> you know, yeah. physically and, and have a, you know, we can see each other's faces. I feel like I'm living in the Jetsons where I grew up with, you know, <laughs> and, um, but, we, but we have the ability to collaborate, not just within local physically local communities, but worldwide now. And so we can really truly call on the the best ideas that are out there anywhere to guide us through this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's that's, that's why it's so imperative for us to help people understand that there are different biblical narratives uh, because it seems like the, the loudest one, uh, in my opinion right now, is not always the most attractive. And um, we've, we've seen the church decline as an institution because of that. Uh, but perhaps um, these online platforms give us that opportunity to have uh, different con uh, conversations and help people understand there's another story. There's a better yeah. story. Good stuff, man. This is good stuff. I could go on for hours, but neither of us have that kind of time <laughs> yeah. today. So is, is there anything else that, that you'd like to add or anything you're, you're working on that you want to talk about or? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to tease out these ideas with competing narrative, and it's so big. Uh, it's because it's something that I'm working through personally. So I hope to I hope to start another writing project very soon on that uh, topic. But I, I have a feeling it's going to take me longer than ten weeks this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, is is there is there a place online where folks can find your work or anything you're doing? Or not really. Uh, you know, our our sermons each week are published uh, on. YouTube and I share those on my Facebook account. Uh, but I don't, I don't blog anymore. I used to do that. Um, so <laughs> I don't really, I have a Facebook account. That's about it right now. <laughs> well, well, the, the accidental tomatoes podcast will certainly make you, uh, famous and a household name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate the invitation. We, we have literally dozens of listeners at this point. So. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Hey, that's so, awesome. Well, thanks, Jonathan. I really, really appreciate you taking some time uh, to be a part of this conversation today. I think uh, I think you've got some really important thoughts that you're putting out into the world. And I, I want you to know how much I appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate, you know, our, our friendship and, you know, the ability that we have to, to share some of these ideas and, and to be, you know, um, collaborators and co-conspirators on what, what I hope turns into some really good work for the world. So, so That's, thanks again. Uh, thanks again for being part of it. And um, uh, again, yeah, well, I, I look forward to another conversation sometime soon. That sounds great, Joe. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks.
So that's a wrap. That's it for episode number 20 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jonathan as much as I enjoyed the conversation that he and I had together. And I hope that his insights and ideas and thoughts can be helpful to you on whatever your spiritual journey is and wherever you may find yourself on it. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com and across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please, please, please be sure to like and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. That's where you will find the most up-to-the-minute updates of all of the things that are going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, on my website, joewebwrites.com, where I blog every week about a lot of the same topics that we talk about um, here on the podcast, but maybe with a little bit of a different perspective on those things. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I am at Joe Webb Writes. If you have any suggestions or ideas or thoughts about future podcast topics, I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can, again, contact us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, um, one of the best things you can do is to throw us up a rating and a review on whatever app it is that you use to listen to your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen. That will help other people find us and help people connect with our community and participate in the conversations that we are having together. If you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon platform where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community like web hosting and sound production and things like that. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. And until next time, please keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for the next episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.